And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is God's word. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have been studying this text, we've been brought to the realization that we cannot live out to this high and holy calling in and of ourselves, that only by the power of your Spirit dwelling within us, conforming us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, would we ever, O oh God, live in light of this passage. And yet, Heavenly Father, I'm quite certain that all of us in here want to live in light of this passage. We want to obey your word. We want these characteristics to be true in our own life. Even this eighth beatitude that we'll look at next week, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. If we're going to suffer, we want to suffer for righteousness' sake, O oh Lord. We want to be faithful to your word. And Heavenly Father, we pray for grace. We pray for grace that we would be obedient, beginning with being poor in spirit and moving on from there. We ask for your blessing to be upon us. And would the seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, be a piece of that puzzle that you are putting together as you mold us and shape us to be more like your son for your glory and the good of your people. Heavenly Father, that's our blessing with regards to this text this evening. We also want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to pray for Randy, his mother, who is passing on. And we pray that she would uh, go uh, peaceably, O Lord. We thank you that she knows you as her Savior and Lord, and therefore she's going to a better place. And so we mourn with our brother over the loss of his loved one, but also rejoice and are slightly envious with the holy envy that she is already in your presence. Uh, That is when she passes, O Lord. We also want to pray for Mr. Bixler and just pray for his healing. Thank you that he is doing better today. Thank you for his service here at this church, and we pray that you continue to help him to recover uh, from the high blood sugar. These things we commit to you in the name of your Son. Amen. So, we're looking at the seventh beatitude this evening. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons uh, of God. Now, I know uh, it's summer, and, and people come and go, and so I I truly can't remember if everyone was here the first week or not. I think everyone was here the, the first week, but if you weren't, I just want to uh, recap some of the things that we talked about in the first week, and, and Andrews and Zach have discussed in, in in the uh, previous weeks as well, uh, to begin with, by way of reminder, and then also the context in which we find our passage. So first of all, I want us to remember that Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples. That's verse 1 there. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. It's his disciples who are here on the mountain. So Jesus is not speaking to all people in the world. He's speaking to his followers. He's speaking to those who've repented of their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. And so just keeping that in mind because um, there are people around us who maybe are more naturally meek, who maybe are more merciful. My little sister growing up was something of a peacemaker, a mediator in my family. But 
she's not living out what is here being described. You know, we see these characteristics in some people more naturally than in others, but what is being described here is a true follower of Jesus Christ. There are eight characteristics here of the one who is a Christian that these things will be manifest in their life. And no natural man, someone who has not trusted in Christ for salvation, they aren't going to manifest these things. They're not going to make these things known to the depth, to the extent that Jesus Christ is here describing. So just by way of reminder that Jesus here is speaking to his disciples, to those who have been uh, regenerated by the Spirit of God, number one. But number two, uh, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. Jesus' disciples were Jewish people. And so Jesus here, there's, there's Jewish connotations here that I think Anders and Zach and, and I have labored to bring out, but uh, certainly at a cursory glance, maybe we don't notice it at first. It's not as apparent. And in addition, Matthew is the gospel to the Jewish people. He's writing to a Jewish audience. As Mark is the gospel to the Romans, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so there are some of those uh, nuances here that maybe uh, don't stand out to us at, at first. Uh, the one that I want to point out as we look at our passage this evening is the Jewish conception of the Messiah. Who was the Christ to be? What were they expecting? And uh, as we see in, in, in Scripture, um, John and, and James coming to, to Jesus along with their mother, asking to sit at his right hand and on his left in his kingdom, they, they were expecting Jesus to, I think I said this in the first week, but to zap the Romans. They were expecting a, a conquering king to come, not on a, a donkey's colt, but on a on a steed, on a white horse, you know, a sword brandish and, and bringing the nations into subjection. That was their concept of the Messiah. And so I just, I just want us to have that in mind as we're looking at this passage here, the Beatitudes, just to somewhat refocus because, you know, the first words out of Jesus' mouth bring great expectation, blessed, blessed. Those who are, are happy, who, who are, are receiving a divine gift from God and Jesus' disciples, they've probably been exhilarated at this point. They have expectations that Jesus is this Messiah. He begins by saying, bless. They're, they're thrilled. And then they hear, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, it's a recalibration going on in their mind. And as they work through there, the next blessing, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn? What? What is this guy saying? We just left our nets. James and John, Andrew and Peter left everything to follow the Lord Jesus. And what is this teaching that he is here propagating? What, what is the significance of this? And as we come to the seventh beatitude this evening, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I, I, I've, you know, this uh, R.C. Sproul says that it's the preacher's prerogative to embellish on the text. So this, I'm, I'm just, you know, just thinking through this with, with you here. But it, it would seem that the, the uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus are, are probably expecting not a peacemaker, but a warlord, a conquering king. And so again, as these words come out of Jesus' mouth, their minds are probably reeling. How, how do we make sense of what he's about to say and wait till he gets to the eighth beatitude, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so uh, just by... I just want us to keep that in mind as we look at our text, the context in which we find this passage. Jesus speaking to a Jewish audience who had expectations of this heroic Messiah, something of a Superman, and he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. So just keep that in mind as we consider our text this evening. Um, one of the reasons that I want us to think about that is to answer this question, why are peacemakers blessed? Why are peacemakers blessed? That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this evening. But before we go there, I thought it would be helpful if we defined what a peacemaker is. And, um, 
you know, one of the, the tools that can help us to understand something is to see what it's not. So I thought I'd use a story that I heard last week that I just thought really captured what a lot of times comes to my mind when I think about peace. That's not a biblical peace. It's a story that a friend shared with me last week. And so my buddy is a firefighter. And uh, we got together to grab a cup of coffee at, at Starbucks there in uh, Union Gap. He's a firefighter in Zilla. And he told me, well, John, on my way to sea today, I was driving down my road. And as I walked out of my house, I heard a car horn honking repeatedly. It's it quite obnoxious. But I saw the car at the house that has a known troublemaker. And a guy who's notorious for being drunk all the time. Young man who's quite troubled, has a good father, but is quite troubled in and of himself. And so I wasn't really surprised. You know, things like this have happened before. We've had to escort the young man home. He's been drunk and come to our house instead of his own. So this car honking outside wasn't that much of a surprise to him. What was a surprise is as he drove by that house, he saw the man wave to him that was in the vehicle, except for he waved, except for he waved with one finger. He gave him the bird. And my friend said, you know, John, I could have just kept on driving and not thought anything of it. But, you know, I said to myself, I think I'm in a good mood for a, I think the term he used was a fist to cuffs. I'm in the mood for a good fist to cuffs today. He was ready to, to fight this, this guy. So he's got this fire truck, and so he's backing up, and when he backs up, it's got the beep on, you know, beep, 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 very obnoxious. And he starts backing down the driveway, and he pulls up next to the guy, and he says, hey, I saw you waving at me. Is there something I can help you out with? And he says, no, no, you're good. You just, you, you continue on your way. Sorry about that misunderstanding. He said, you sure? You sure there's not something I can help you out with? And he said, no, no, I'm just, you know, waiting, waiting for a friend. Don't, don't mind me. And so he continued on his way. But I've got to think that in my friend's mind, he probably looked at that situation and said, I made peace. I made peace. That was, that was a form of peace. There was reconciliation brought to that, that situation. He probably thought he'd done pretty, pretty good, actually. But that's not the peace that the Lord Jesus here is speaking of. See, there's a peace that the world promotes that is um, one person stronger than another or one country stronger than another forcing someone else into submission by a show of force, by superior military strength. Okay? And, and, and it's the idea of living by the sword, of enforcing your will upon someone else. And you say, it's my way or the highway, and if you don't listen to me, then, then you die in, in, in terms of a, a nation, let's say. So that's not what the Lord Jesus has in mind here. As he says, blessed are the peacemakers. That may be what the disciples were thinking. That's not what he has in mind. So what does the Lord Jesus have in mind? See, I think the Lord Jesus has in mind here someone who not only seeks an absence of hostility, but also the advancement of human good and flourishing. See, the peace that Jesus Christ is here describing is twofold. There's a passive side, but there's an active side. The passive side is that you're not seeking to do wrong to someone. But there's also an active side, that you're seeking to do good to someone. So in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, it's not that we just don't hate our enemies. That is, we don't just not hate those who hate us, but we also love them. There's not only the absence of evil, there's also the presence of good. That's the peace that Jesus is here describing that the peacemakers are to be making. There's this absence of evil and the presence of good. Peacemakers are seeking to bring reconciliation between two opposed parties. That's what a peacemaker does. That's who a peacemaker is. And so I gave you a negative example. I'd like to give you a positive example. 
If you attended the first Peter series, I used the story in that class. So sorry, I'm a broken record on this one. But it's such a, it's such a moving story. Richard Wormbrand. Anyone heard of him? Yeah. Richard Wormbrand. Tortured for Christ. Tortured for Christ. Yeah, the, vo- the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs. Okay, so he was a Lutheran pastor in Romania, in uh, uh, communist-controlled Romania. And when the, the Soviets moved into the country, he stood up for the gospel. He stood up for, for the cross. He, he was not willing to compromise on uh, biblical truth. And they arrested him. They imprisoned him. And Faith Life came out with a movie um, about his story, I don't know, a few, a few months ago, six months ago or so. It's, it's worth watching. But there's an incredibly moving scene in the movie that, that captures this idea of what a biblical peacemaker is. And see, uh, Richard, he's been locked away in prison, separated from his wife, and he's seen the prison guards not only bludgeon uh, himself to within an inch of his life, his feet were so badly uh, uh, beaten day after day that he was no longer able to walk. He was being drugged to his, his cell, and yet he was still praying and, and preaching Christ and encouraging his brothers and sisters, and so they would lock him in solitary confinement. And, you know, one of the, the most moving scenes of the, the film is when he zooms in on Richard's face, beaten and bruised, and he's got his hands like this, his eyes closed, and he's praying. And it zooms in on the door, and the slit opens on the door, and this big, mean guard who's been torturing him looks in, and he loses it. He says, Richard, you know what are, what are you doing? God has abandoned you. Your wife has abandoned you. You're never going to get out of here. There's no hope for you. Stop praying to God. What are you even praying for? And he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. See, Richard was living out a peacemaker. There wasn't only the absence of hostility. He he didn't seek to hurt this man. He didn't pray for him in spite of him. He wasn't praying, in this case, imprecatory prayers against him. He wasn't seeking to have this man damned. But he was seeking the good of this man. He was seeking the salvation of this man. He was seeking that this man would find peace with God, as Richard himself had it. That's a peacemaker. Not not my buddy down there in, in Zilla. Who was willing to to fight to bring peace, uh, and uh, with his fists? But but Richard, who was willing to pray for peace, who was willing to to suffer for peace, that's a peacemaker. But that raises the question: Why is Richard here described as blessed? How is a man beaten to within an inch of his life? He did live. He ended up living and getting out. Most of his friends and family didn't. Why is he blessed? Why are peacemakers blessed? Those who live that way. That's the question I want to to move on to next. Because from a world's perspective, you look at at Richard, you look at someone who's living that way. I don't know why that person's blessed, tortured, separated from his family. Why is that blessing? How can that possibly be? So, blessed are the peacemakers. Why are peacemakers blessed? I'm going to give three reasons. One of them is here in the text. You see it right there. For they shall be called the sons of God. That's the last one I'll look at, but I want to look at two before that. And first of all, peacemakers are blessed because they reflect the character and work of God. They reflect the character and work of God. See, peacemakers can't make peace until they themselves have peace. And peacemakers won't have peace until they first make peace with God, who is the source of peace. See, there is no peace apart from God. There's no peace apart from God. God created the world in peace. He looked at it. It's good. He looked at Adam and Eve. It's very good. It's only when sin entered the world through the temptation and sin of Adam that chaos, that disorder, that war, that strife, that 
being quarrelsome, that's when sin entered into the world. It wasn't prior to that, my friends. God is a God of peace. We have war in the world because there is an absence of God. We've turned our backs on God. We've sinned. So, before we can make peace with others, we must first make peace with God, who is himself the source of peace. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, reads it, uh, says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. God is the God of peace. Romans chapter 15, verse 32 and 33. So that by God's will, Paul writing here, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-three: For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. God is a God of peace. He's committed to peace. He's so committed to peace that he sent his son following the fall of man. He sent his son to die on a cross to bring peace to the world. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. I'm getting so excited to preach on that part. So, God is a God of peace. But not only is God the Father a God of peace, but God the Son is also a God of peace. I don't know if you guys get Christmas cards. Hopefully everyone here gets Christmas cards at some point in the year. And um, one of the most frequently quoted, quoted scriptures on there is, is Isaiah chapter 9. Is I, Isaiah chapter 9. You guys will recognize this. Verses 6 through 7, it reads, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And the Prince of Peace. And then it goes on to say this, And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. But not only is Jesus Christ the Prince of Peace, but he is also the preacher of peace. He's the preacher of peace. He came preaching good news. He came preaching that man who was in sin could have peace with God through faith in his name. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is a sermon that I heard Tim Keller preach on that was incredibly impactful early on in my Christian life. He pointed out, Jesus Christ is the preacher of peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 reads, And he, Jesus Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That is, to Jews and Gentiles. To those who are near, Jews, and to those who are far off, Gentiles. That Jesus Christ is not only the Prince of Peace, but He also speaks peace. He preaches peace. He offers peace to any who would receive it. To any who would come to Him on His terms. Who would believe in Him for salvation. So that they would be made right with God. So He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Preacher of Peace. But He's also the Provider of Peace for His people. John chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. You'll recognize these verses. Uh, excuse me, verse 27 reads, Jesus here speaking, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus Christ provides peace to his people, peace that the world knows nothing of. And then again in John chapter 16, verse 33, one of the the last things that Jesus is going to say before he leaves the upper room to join his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion. He's concerned about his disciples. He says these words, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ provides his people with peace, his own peace, a peace that the world does not understand, that it can't comprehend. And lastly, Jesus Christ is so committed to peace that he purchased peace, even with his own life. So, uh, Colossians chapter 1, let's start there. Colossians chapter 1, verse verse 20. It looks like I need to turn there. Sorry guys, I thought I might have had that one on this piece of paper. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 19 reads, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that is, in Jesus Christ, and through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Jesus Christ purchased peace between God and man with nothing less than the shedding of His blood. God is a God of peace. He's committed to peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace who preaches peace and provides peace, and He even purchases peace for His people. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, a passage familiar to to probably all of us here. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. So, to summarize Jesus Christ and His person and work, we would say that He is the ultimate peacemaker. He's the ultimate peacemaker. He's the ultimate one who dies for his enemies. He is the one who lays down his life for those who are opposed to him, who are hostile to him, as Pastor Nate said two weeks ago, who have never come towards him. We didn't want peace with him, but he was willing to die to purchase peace for us. Okay, So God is committed to peace. But let's let the Holy Spirit get in on this action. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, and and peace. Love, joy, and peace. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And again, in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, we read this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blesses the people of God with peace. With peace. So peacemakers are blessed even when they're in a prison cell, even when they are suffering as Richard Wormbrand was suffering. They are yet blessed because they are reflecting the character and work of God. They are partakers of the divine nature. They're living out the high and holy calling to which they have been called in Christ Jesus. But not only are peacemakers blessed because they are reflecting the character and work of God, but they're also blessed because they're experiencing the blessings of the gospel. Okay, the blessings of the gospel. Namely, brothers and sisters, we not only have peace with God, a permanent peace because Jesus Christ has purchased it for us, but we also have the peace of God. That is, God gives to us his perfect peace as a blessing of the gospel. Okay, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. I memorized this verse as a, as a young man, and 
it's great to see it come up in the, in the passage. It, it can be used. It's, it's wonderful to think about. It reads this way. And by the way, the context here, Isaiah rejoicing in the salvation of God, following his judgment upon his people. He says this, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. A perfect peace, a complete peace, a peace that the world doesn't understand. Paul expresses it like this in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, a passage probably familiar to all of us here. Philippians chapter 4, I believe it's verse 6. The peace that God gives to His people. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, a perfect peace, a complete peace, a peace which the world cannot give, but that God gives to his people. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God not only gives peace, he gives a peace that guards our hearts and minds, so that we are in peace, so that Richard was in peace in that prison cell, so that when we face the trials and tribulations of this life, we know that we have peace with God and we have the peace of God given to us as a gift. We are experiencing the blessing of the gospel. But number three, why peacemakers are blessed, as the text makes clear here for us, is because they will be called the sons of God. They'll be called the sons of God. And we covered this briefly uh, back in the first week, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we said that those who are king, uh, are in the kingdom of heaven are citizens and are children, and as children they are co-heirs with Christ. And what Jesus here is saying is that the one who reflects the character and work of God and experiences the blessing of God, that is the one who receives peace from God because they have peace with God, they're going to seek to make peace with others. And in so doing, they reflect God who saved them, who gave them that peace in the first place. It's only when we have peace with God and from God that we're going to seek to make peace with others. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ here is describing for the one who is called the Son of God. You know, we have the expression like father, like son. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And that's what the Lord Jesus is here describing. The one who is called a son of God. So even though uh, the one who seeks to make peace may very well be persecuted for righteousness sake and have all kinds of evil uttered against them falsely, they can be at peace knowing that through Jesus Christ they have peace with God through his death on the cross for their sins and that they have the peace of God guarding their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, then the question becomes, how do we live as peacemakers in the world around us? How do we live? What's the application here? Number one, we are to live as peacemakers amongst fellow human, uh, our fellow humans, our, our fellow people, our, our neighbors, if you would, if you would use that, that term. We are to live at peace. We are to seek to make peace with those around us, first and foremost with the people of God our brothers and sisters in Christ. If Jesus Christ died to purchase peace for his people, it would make sense that we would seek to keep that peace. But we as Christians not only seek to live at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we also seek to live at peace with all those around us. Okay, Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, a startling passage. It reads this way, if possible, So far as it depends on you, 
Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And you say, well, John, how far do I have to go to live at peace with someone? Well, Paul explains that to live at peace with someone, to go to such an extent, is even to feed an enemy who is hungry and to give an enemy who is thirsty something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. We are to seek to live at peace even with those who would persecute us so far in as it is possible for us. And it makes sense. Jesus Christ sought to live at peace and purchased peace with his own life for those, for us, who were his enemies, who didn't want anything to do with him. And we're called to be followers of Christ. What else does it mean to take up our cross and to deny ourselves and to follow the Lord Jesus? But to live that out. And of course, that's a lot easier said than, than done. <laughs> that's a lot easier said than, than done. But I'm giving you the principles tonight. I'm giving you the principles. And so we are to seek to be peacemakers amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ and amongst the people of this world. But in addition, we are also to seek to be peacemakers amongst those who don't know Jesus Christ. That is, we are to seek to make peace between God and man. Between God and man. And here's what I mean by this. You know, amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ, the term is probably peacekeepers. We're peacekeepers. We already have peace. We need to live in light of that peace, right? Okay. But what about those who don't have peace? Who don't have peace with God and don't have the peace of Christ in their hearts? We have to make peace. That is, we are the ones who have to seek to establish peace with them. We have to build bridges to them, even as Jesus Christ came to us. Even as God sent his son to make peace with us, so we need to go to others. We need to live, in a word, evangelistically. We need to live evangelistically. So that those who don't know Christ would come to know Christ, brothers and sisters. We need to stretch our hand across the aisle, as it were, and seek to live at peace. Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating for a compromising of biblical truth by no means. The, the uh, beatitude before this one is blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who live in life of God's word. We're not compromising biblical truth. Pure in heart comes before peacemakers. John Piper pointed that out. That's not original. Pure in heart comes before being peacemakers. But so far and as we're possible without compromising biblical truth, we are to live at peace with those around us. That's the goal. And an aspect of that is living evangelistically so that those who don't have peace, wouldn't only experience peace with us, though that's important so that they will want to listen to us, but that they would experience peace with God. They'd experience peace with God. Lastly, the last point of application that I want to make this evening is uh, uh, from the commentary series that, that Matt gave us, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in his uh, comments here on this particular beatitude, he points out that before a person can ever become a peacemaker, they first must be poor in spirit. They, they first must uh, be meek. They must, as Andrew said two weeks ago, be those who've clung, uh, uh, climbed the rungs of the ladder. Okay? In a word, they must forget themselves. For us to be peacemakers, we have to forget ourselves. And this struck a chord with my heart because it works so often I'm guilty of thinking in terms of how does this affect me. And I think all of us would acknowledge that certainly our natural tendency, and even as those who believe in Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to think of in our life in terms of how does this affect me. 
How does this impact me? What about me? What about me? What about me? It's all about me. And as long as it's about us, we'll never be able to make peace with others because we're not going to be concerned for them. We're only concerned for ourselves. So we must forget the me. There is a book that um, we were asked to read in college. It's called The Calvary Road, if anyone's read it. It's an older book by a man named Roy Hessian. The main concept in this book was that the I must become a C. We must become submissive to Christ. Those who are proud and stiff-necked, who stand upright, must humble themselves. And the eye must be bent into the shape of a sea. We must become like Christ. We must humble ourselves. That's the idea here. If we're going to be peacemakers, we have to humble ourselves. It can't be about us. As long as it's about us, we'll never be able to make peace. Not true, lasting, biblical peace that seeks not only the absence of hostility, but also the advancement of human flourishing in the lives of people around us. So, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and your word this evening. And again, we want to live in light of Scripture. And so we pray for your blessing. We ask for your blessing. We pray that we would be those who make peace with those around us. We pray that we'd forget ourselves. We pray that we would mortify the deeds of our flesh by the power of your Spirit so that we would live. We, we pray, O oh God, that we would turn our back on what the values of the world um, are what the values of the world are and focus on what you value O god esteeming others better than ourselves, looking not only to our needs but also to the needs of others this is how you live lord jesus may this mind be in us we pray bless us in that way O lord even if it means being persecuted for righteousness sake may we be faithful to your word in Jesus' name amen so we have about 15 minutes left here i don't i don't have questions for you i will say um, if you want, it could very well be productive to talk about at your tables how in each and every one of our lives we can seek to be peacemakers uh, in our own lives. Uh, since I didn't really give any specific applications of, you know, in your marriage, as parents, in the workplace. And so if we want to spend time uh, discussing, I think that could be a profitable conversation amongst uh, one another. That being said, you're, you're free to go um, unless, Matt, you have any announcements or anything. Great. So, yeah. That's that's where we are now, brothers and sisters.